So let's jump into the text here. Paul says that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, uh, which is quite a powerful statement, isn't it? What he's talking about there, he's talking about powerful forces of darkness. He's talking about Satan. He's talking about demons. He's talking about spiritual warfare. And I know to a lot of people, hopefully not to you, but I know to a lot of people that sounds over the top ridiculous. Seriously, it sounds ludicrous. It's like, hang on, time out, pastor. You're telling me that a guy like you that has, I don't know, at least a third grade education, you're telling me that you believe in a personal devil. This devil with like a pitchfork and a tail and red underwear and he, and he, and he goes around tormenting people, right? You believe that. Well, not all of that, but I believe what the Bible says. Um, and so, see, there's usually two reactions that people have to this kind of thing. Either they're completely dismissive like that, completely dismissive, scoff, laugh it up to scorn, say that's unbelievable, how can people in their right mind believe those things, Um, or they're obsessive. I want to talk about both of those for a little bit. So they're either dismissive, um, and they say, you're out of your mind, how can, you're delusional to think that. But listen, here's the issue. The Bible talks about it, but did you know Jesus talked about the devil? Did you know that? Jesus in Luke chapter 10, verse 18 said this. He said, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. So question is this, do you think Jesus was delusional? (laughs) Because Jesus talked about the devil, he believed in the devil, he fought against the devil. So if I'm delusional, then I'm in good company. Jesus is too, right? So a lot of people are either dismissive like that, say we're insane, or they obsess over his existence. And here's what I mean by that. Like, oh, definitely I believe in the devil. If you get a cold, it's the devil. If your lawn dies, it's the devil. Um, if, If you know, if your cat dies, it's the devil. The devil's in everything. I mean, he's sovereign. You know, forget God. Forget even dualism. Satan is sovereign, and he's out to get all of us and watch your back, right? In fact, let me get a little bit personal. I'm 43 years old. I grew up in the Bible Belt, okay? In the late 80s and early 90s, I was a tween, teen, and I remember there was this satanic panic going on. Some of you may be old enough to remember this. Some of you maybe not. But in the Bible Belt, I was scared out of my gourd because everybody and their dog was talking about Satan's secret schemes and tactics. And it seemed like all the things I enjoyed were satanic. I'm serious. Uh, The music I liked to listen to, it was satanic. If you played it backwards, you'd hear some kind of subliminal satanic message, you know. Uh, ACDC, play it backward, it talks about the devil and... Uh, Guns and Roses and Judas Priest and Ozzy Osbourne, he was the big one that, you know, bit rats heads off and all of that. They thought he was like the son, the spawn of the devil. So the devil was in all that heavy metal music, okay? And I'm not saying heavy metal music is good, okay? Well, that's a sermon for another time and an argument for another place. Um, but Satan's secret weapon was heavy metal music. Or, or, or if it wasn't that, it was the dolls and action figures that you play with, like Cabbage Patch dolls. Those are demonic, you know? Uh, and, and, and the devil was in Saturday morning cartoons. I'm serious. I heard this. People were talking about it. Adults talked about it. Teachers talked about it. Pastors talked about it. Because Skeletor, man, will rob your soul, right? Papa Smurf is out to, <laughs> Papa Smurf is out to get you. I mean, all, He-Man, all the action figures. Uh, Satan was in all of those things. And I just remember everything was suspect. And everybody was scared out of their wits. Now, if you're too young to remember this, this idea carries on. Pokemon cards and Harry Potter books and people see the devil in everything. 
everything that maybe we don't understand or maybe we don't enjoy or, or have an affinity for, it's satanic and you should stay as far away from it as you can. I remember when I was a teenager, 60 Minutes and 2020 and Geraldo Rivera, you guys remember all these specials? And they were talking about just this wave of satanicism and occult. Seriously, it was, uh, and I had blonde hair, bright blue eyes and blonde hair when I was little. And they said, you are the perfect kid for a satanic sacrifice. They're really going to try to get you. You better be careful on the playground. I was scared out of my wits. I was. That's what I heard growing up. Uh, and every time Geraldo Rivera was on the air, he would spew out the next satanic fad that you had to watch out for. Um, and so everyone was scared. And look, I'm not an idiot. I know things like, you know, they were after Dungeons and Dragons and board games and stuff like that. And I know some of that stuff can be dangerous, especially things like a Ouija board or you dabble around in occult. That's not a good idea, guys, okay? That's a terrible idea. Trying to talk to dead people on a board game is not a good idea because dead people don't talk. So if somebody responds to you, I can tell you who it is. It's, it's, it's a demon, okay? And demons can use things like that. But it was obsessive. It was like over the top. I was scared out of my wits. I thought Satan was everywhere and he was out to get me. So how do we approach this idea of uh, Satan and demons? And it's, it's pervasive. It's all through the Bible. You know, the Bible talks about these things. And Paul here says that there's an invisible war. So how do we approach it? You get both of these extremes, dismissive or obsessive. And you know what? Uh, retailers like the Christian book industry, they aren't really that helpful when you're trying to learn about this. If you were to just Google spiritual warfare, which is a theological term dealing with this subject we're talking about, you'd get a gazillion hits. And most of them, i got to be honest, are going to be garbage. They're not going to really reflect a biblical um, perspective on this. But Paul gives us something really helpful here. This is just one of the many places in the New Testament where we learn about this invisible battle that we're going to be talking about. Uh, and I think he calls us to approach this with great care, with great humility, and with an open Bible. And that's the way I want to do it. So uh, let's, put the, uh, let's put the sermon slide up here. These are the points I want to make today, okay? First of all, we are engaged in a battle. We are, all of us, engaged in a battle. Secondly, we face a dangerous enemy. You could say a formidable opponent. And for those three reasons we'll talk about, he's powerful, he's evil, and he's cunning. And third... We don't stand alone. Some people would say we don't stand a chance. That's the wrong point. We don't stand alone in this fight. We have a mighty advocate on our side. Amen? So that's what I want to talk about. Those are the three points. So the first one is this. We are engaged in a battle. What do I mean by that? Let's put up the next slide up there, guys. Notice how careful Paul is. Do you notice this repetition here? When Amber read that text, did you hear this word against, 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 against? Six times. You may say, well, that's repetitive and that's bad writing. But Paul would say, I did that on purpose. That's good theology. It may be bad writing to us, um, but it's good theology because, because what Paul is trying to communicate here is that there is a war going on. There is a battle. And we are engaged in this battle at some level, even whether we know it or not. We're in it. We're either targets or we're soldiers, right? That's what the Apostle Paul is telling us. This is a battle. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And listen, when Paul says that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, he's not saying that there are not opponents and conflicts and we don't have enmity with certain people. Uh, if he meant that, then that would totally discredit his statement. What he's saying is 
our conflict, our battle is not merely at a human level. Okay, I know there's human elements in this battle. There's people that are even possessed by Satan. There's false teachers that are satanic, and we're engaged in a war there too. But he's saying it goes deeper than that. It's more sinister than that. It's more subtle than that. Satan is a very crafty enemy. So there's a little word here in this text, and it's the word for. He says, strengthen yourself by the might that God provides. Uh, Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Um, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And then this next little word in verse 12, for. And I love that. You know, it's been said you can't reason yourself into Christianity, but Christianity is a reasonable, logical uh, system, isn't it? If you want to call it a system or religion. Because Paul and, and, and all of the other writers in the Old Testament and the New Testament, they never tell us to do anything without giving us the reason why. And this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, look, uh, strengthen yourself by the might of God, okay? And he's saying, put on your armor, and here's why. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. There is a very good reason. There's a very good reason to put this armor on. Um, The first five chapters of this book, Ephesians, I'm not going to take the time to summarize it, but it talks about the invincible and eternal purposes of God for all of us Christians in Christ. We have been saved, we've been predestined, we've been set apart to live life this way. He's just spent five chapters telling us this. This is what the home looks like. It's what the workplace looks like. It's what the marriage looks like. This is what parenting looks like. This is God's master plan for the church. These are God's purposes in Christ for for his universe. And then chapter 6, and he says, And put on your armor because there is a very real enemy who has set himself against all of those purposes. He's going to tear all of those down. If God is seeking to tear down the wall of hostility between races, between Jews and Gentiles, Satan, you can rest assured, is going to try to build those walls back up, right? If God is calling for a happy, peaceful home, Satan's going to sow discord. He wants enmity and conflict. At all the purposes of God for you and I in Christ, Satan is seeking to overthrow them, to reverse them, to destroy them and tear them down. You could, you could think of it this way. The very end of a letter is important. Don't you think? The last thing you say in a letter before the PS, just some random thought, it's an important statement. And Paul says something here that's interesting. He says, finally. Finally. He's closing out. So all these purposes, he's, he's given you, you could say, maybe marching order. These are God's commands for you in Christ. He's unpacked all this rich gospel theology. Uh, and then Paul is saying, now finally... Um, He doesn't say, the end, thank you, sign the Apostle Paul. It's not what he says. How does he end this letter? Think of it this way, okay? He says, here are your instructions. Go out and do it. And he says, finally, now now hang on a minute before you go. You need to know. You're going to go out and you're going to do all these things. um, But there's going to be somebody shooting at you while you do it. (laughs) Right? He's he's saying, you're going to be under enemy fire when you're doing these things. It would be like me telling you to go out and build a fort. My kids love building forts. Maybe your kids do too, right? And it will be like God saying, okay, go out and build this amazing fort. And I want it to look this way and that way. And here's the blueprints. Here's the instructions. And then you start to run off and he says, but hang on a minute. There's going to be people throwing grenades at you and they're going to be shooting at you. There's people that want to kill you and you have to go into their territory to build this fort. That's what this letter essentially is saying. Now that can be pretty intimidating if you only look at that part. But Paul lets us know that God is going to be with you. And all these efforts of the enemy, 
Um, God is giving you protection and he's giving you wisdom and he's giving you instructions to know how to withstand this enemy. But the enemy is real, he's alive, and he is against you because you belong to God. His stamp is on you. You are his and therefore the enemy is against you. So this is what uh, Tim Keller says this about spiritual warfare, about satanic influence. You know, we, we, we look around in the world and we see a lot of traumatic things happening, don't we? School shootings, massacres, mental health issues. Uh, and sometimes we just maybe write those things off as mental health or just a coincidence or we see a terrorist attack. But listen, guys, the Bible gives us a much more accurate perspective. It's saying that, look, not all of these things are coincidences. These things are too deep. These are not coincidences. And Tim Keller says this. He says, you could try to talk yourself out of this series of coincidences on these evil days, because this verse says, prepare yourself for the evil day, right? Ephesians 6. You can say, this is a day in which the forces of supernatural evil are in particularly arrayed against me, and I have to put the armor of God on and stand. Paul is saying, on that evil day, you may feel like somebody is out to get me, and maybe somebody is out to get you. That's what Tim Keller says, and I agree with him. We can say, oh, it's just a coincidence. This happened, that happened. Or maybe, and we don't know for sure, maybe this is satanic. Maybe this is demonic. Very real possibility it is. And I would say this, guys, just a little personal Maybe I'm going off script again. That's okay. This won't be heresy. I have found being a church planter, um, I feel that, that there is more spiritual warfare going in, on in my life the last three to four years than there ever has been, ever. And I just can't chalk it up to, to coincidence. Even preparing for this message today and next week, some of the craziest, most outlandish things have happened to me and to my family. It's crazy. I'm not going to tell you all about them because some of it could be coincidence, but it's really interesting, and Jeff will tell you the same thing. Every time we've ever planned to talk about this or come to it when we went through the book of 1 Corinthians or the Gospel of Mark, crazy things happen. It's just really interesting, and I just up my prayers, and Lord, if this is who I think it is, get him, God, <laughs> you know? Um, but you can't just chalk all these things up to coincidence. There's a real battle out there, and the Bible says... Uh, that Satan is real, he's powerful, and he's active. This is an invisible battle, and there's supernatural, dark, evil forces against us. And we can't just always say, well, that's just terrorism, that's just mental health. There's something cosmic, there's something supernatural, and there's something transcendent at work in a lot of these things. And listen, guys, the Bible can account for all the evil we see in the world, can it? And it does. It tells us why things are happening the way that they are. There was a um, a scientist, and his name was, I wrote his name down on one of these pages here. His name was Beck. He was a psychologist, and he was a psychiatrist, and he was an agnostic, he was an atheist. And after years and years of clinical studies and having clients in his office and reading the Bible, he finally came to a place where he said, you know what, the issues that some of these people have that I'm trying to help them confront and overcome and combat, he said, this is... This is more than just psychiatry. There's more than just psychology and mental health here. He said, there is something very sinister and very dark and very evil. There was one lady in particular he talked about. He saw her almost 500 times and she never made one ounce of progress. And he saw near the last four or five sessions, she seemed to be toying with him. It was really interesting. 
And then he saw two cases of demonic possession and exorcism, and, he, and that put him over the top. He said, I believe in the devil, I believe in Christianity, and he became converted because he just saw there's too much sinister, dark, cosmic evil in the world, and only the Bible can account for it. Only the Bible has an answer for these things. So, there is a fight. This, this text says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And that word wrestle, it means hand-to-hand combat. It means there is a very real and very intense struggle. It's the same word that was used to translate the Old Testament into Greek for when Jacob wrestled with an angel of the Lord all night. Same word. There's this struggle. There's this wrestling. And I would say this. If you don't sense this combat, this battle, um, maybe there's something missing from your Christian life. Maybe you really haven't engaged this Christianity thing at the level God intends for you to. Because listen, there's, there's agony there's a fight. There's a battle. I know people promise when you come to Jesus, there's going to be peace. And look, there's an element of truth in that because the Bible says in Romans 5, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God. We do. We have peace with God, um, but we also have war with somebody else, right? We have war with Satan. The Bible talks about that, and that's our own, our own experience testifies to that too. And when you're engaging Satan in church planting especially, I believe church planting, church planters and church plants, I think are on the front line pioneer work of a strategic gospel mission in a city. And I think Satan hates it. I think Satan hates church plants that major on the gospel. That's his greatest enemy is people who proclaim and live out the gospel faithfully. He hates that. He's going to attack with all the vehemence that he can muster up. So I think we have to acknowledge there is a, ba- a battle and it's invisible. We can see messed up families. We can see messed up hearts. We can see messed up neighborhoods and a messed up world. And we can say, well, that's all biological or that's all political or that's all psychological or sociological. Or we could also say there's some demonic influence here. I think the Bible would say we need to be balanced because all of those things can be true. They can. Christianity has the, a complete and holistic approach to life. We believe all those things factor in. But I don't think it's just political or just social or just biological. I think there's a battle going on. So that's the first thing, okay? Point number two, we face a formidable enemy. Not only are we in a battle, a fierce battle that's invisible, but we face a formidable enemy. Now listen, you can take that everything the Bible ever says directly and explicitly about Satan, and you can put it in a Word document, and it won't take you but about 30 minutes to read it. There's not a lot of just explicit instructions in detail about Satan. It's very scant in the Bible. But if you pull out of Scripture and the history of redemption in the Bible, pull out um, things he's responsible for, things that he had his hand in, his influence, his oppression, his efforts, his war man, you would have a lot of reading on your hands, wouldn't you? Listen, I I did a little research this week. There are 27 books in the New Testament. 27 books. Did you know that 26 books in the New Testament either explicitly or implicitly name Satan, the devil, demons, or principalities, authorities, and powers? 26 out of the 27. And the one book that doesn't is one chapter. It's Philemon, and it's a letter to a runaway slave. (laughs) Satan is very busy. We face a very formidable enemy. His presence in the Bible and in the history of God's work is pervasive. It's all over the place. 
And listen, when you read the Old Testament history, you're going to find that characters come and grow and go really quick. Adam and Eve, Moses, Abraham, Joseph, Jacob, Isaac, even David and Solomon um, and the prophets, they all come and go really quick. But the person whose presence is pervasive and it's just woven all through there, and especially uh, as, as an adversary. You know, you see villains in the Bible like Cain and Saul and Jezebel. They're just a blip on the map. But you see Satan, he keeps popping up everywhere, all over the place. His presence is very powerful there. His activity continues. Now, having said all of that about the enemy, I want to say this. Satan is not omnipotent. That word omni just means all, everywhere. He's not omnipotent. That means he doesn't have all power. He's not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at the same time. The Bible only says that there were seven people that Satan directly tempted. Did you know that? Only seven people were told. Eve was one of them. Jesus was one of them. Job was one of them. David, Ananias and Sapphira, and Peter. Is that seven? Those are the only people. Now we know his influence goes very wide because there's there's forces. There's, Satan is organized. There's fallen angels that are a part of his demonic horde. And I think there's structure and there's hierarchy. So, you know, some of the things that we attribute to Satan may not be involving his direct involvement. I don't think Satan's ever tempted me in his life. But I think there's definitely demonic oppression at times that I feel and that I sense against our church, against our family, against myself. Um, so he's not omnipotent. He doesn't have all power. He's not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at the same time. And listen, Satan is omniscient. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know all things. Only God has those three attributes. But I would say this. We need to take Satan's existence serious. Put up this next slide here. The Bible does talk to all of us as if the devil is personally attacking us. Because what I, what I said earlier about... Um, the way he influences and controls the demons that are underneath him. Listen to these verses. Here's one from James chapter 4. It says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil. Here's James telling every Christian in all places at all times to resist the devil. And he will flee from you. Here's 1 Peter. says something really similar. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. Here's Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27. It says, give no opportunity to the devil. And 1 John 5, 19 says, we know that we are from God and that the whole world lies under the power of Satan. So, he is powerful. That's the first point here. He is powerful. This verse says, take a look at it here, in verse 10. It says, finally be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against, check this out, rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's saying that Satan exudes and wields a force and a power, and it's been extended to him and granted to him by God, but nevertheless, he is a powerful opponent. Um, Satan is called at one point by Jesus the prince of the power of the air. Did you guys know that? He says in another place that Satan is the god of this world, the god of this age, and he seeks to blind men and women to the glory of Christ. And Jesus is not exaggerating. He's just telling us uh, the reality that Satan 
is loose in the world. Peter says he, he walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He has great power. And listen, if left to ourselves, we wouldn't have any hope against Satan. I need to say that to remind us that there are giants that have been unleashed in the universe, right? When Satan fell and God allowed him to live. Listen, if God didn't have a purpose for letting Satan live, he would have killed him a long time ago. But there's a very good reason that God has for allowing Satan to continue. Because Satan, in some mysterious ways, accomplishes God's purpose for him. Um, but he is a very formidable and, 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 and powerful enemy of ours. The Bible makes that very plain. And he's evil. That's the next point. He's evil. Do you know the, the word devil actually means diabolos? Diabolical, you could say. That's where we get that word from. It means that he is evil, he is wicked, he is unclean. The Bible says he comes to steal, he comes to kill, he comes to rob, he comes to destroy, he comes to deceive. He's the father of lies. He was a murderer from the beginning. He is a very evil, fallen angel, very wicked. And, and as his purposes, he has everything that is against what's holy and what's righteous and what's pure and what's clean. He's an evil, fallen angel. And here's the last thing he's cunning. And this is what I really wanted to talk about. Let's camp out here for a little bit. Because if, if the Bible calls us to not be ignorant of Satan's devices, to not be ignorant of his schemes, um, and especially in this verse here, it says, Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. But back up here it says, verse 11, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. What's this word schemes? That word in Greek is methodius. It's like Methodist. I guess Satan's a Methodist. No, that's not what it means. It means that Satan has methods, okay? Satan has methods. He has schemes that he uses to assault, to tempt, and to attack. And the Bible says we are not, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we are not to be ignorant of those devices, which means the Bible very plainly spells out for us what they are. Now, next week, we're going to look in more detail at what this armor is, piece by piece that we put on, and how it helps protect us from different affronts and assaults by the enemy. But just for today's purposes, let's talk about what are Satan's devices. One person said this. He said, Satan is a musician. He is a musician, but he needs an instrument, okay? And here's what that theologian meant. Satan needs an instrument to do his craft. Um, John White wrote a book, and it's called The Fight. He was a psychologist, and he was a Christian. And he says, did you know if you walk in a room and lift the lid up off the top of a piano, and you lean your head down in there, and you have perfect pitch, okay, you can sing, you can sing the B note. And every note in that piano, you know, they're covered with felt. He said, they'll all remain absolutely still except for the B note. It begins to vibrate. Did you guys know that? I'm going to try that when I get home. We have a piano. He said, if you sing that note and you sing it perfect, that that B note will begin to vibrate and move. And he said, Satan is just like that. Satan needs an instrument to be able to ply his trade. And listen, Satan has been around for thousands of years and he has observed and studied human behavior. He knows what makes us tick, right? He knows how to bait the hook. He knows what excites us. He knows what lures us. He knows what ensnares us. And Satan knows the note to sing. I'm not saying this to scare you. This shouldn't scare you. It should sober you. We're called to be sober, to be watchful, to be vigilant, to not be ignorant of Satan's devices. 
but he knows the song to sing to get your instrument to vibrate, okay? That's what I'm telling you. And I'll give you an example. There's a place in the Old Testament in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. It's one of the strangest things you'll ever read, and it says, Now Satan stood against Israel, and he incited David to number Israel. Do you guys know that's in the Old Testament? You say, what's that mean? He incited David to number Israel. He tempted David to count all the soldiers in his army in Israel, which was a common thing. You were supposed to do that. There were places in the Old Testament where God commanded his people to count the military soldiers. You would have been, uh, if you were a boy 12 years old or over uh, or older and you could run and you could swing a sword, you were counted. And, and Satan stood against Israel and he tempted David to go and count all the soldiers. So why, what, what's the deal there? Well, Satan was singing a note to David because listen, this was at the zenith of David's power. He was a mighty king. He was powerful. He had conquered pretty much all the known world right there in that sector, okay? And David was proud. And Satan knew that. He knew that's what makes David tick. So I'm going, if I'm going to, if I'm going to, cause the kingdom of Israel to collapse, I'm going to have to tempt its leader. And listen, it wasn't Scooby-Doo that he used to tempt David, okay? It was something, that, that's the thing that I think makes a lot of that that I grew up with as a teenager, honestly, so ridiculous, guys. So ridiculous. Because all the people talking about those things, there was pride in their hearts, many of them. Behind, behind closed doors, the very people talking about these things were being unfaithful in their marriage, they were provoking their children to wrath. That's the real damage that Satan does right there. I don't think Scooby-Doo is a secret weapon, okay? I'm sorry. Maybe there's some danger in it. <laughs> you know, they always took the mask off, saying that it wasn't a real monster, right? But anyway, I'm going on a tangent here. Um, Satan knows what note to sing to get your instrument to vibrate. That's how he works. George Whitfield once preached an amazing message. He was an incredibly gifted evangelist in the 17th century. God used him and John and Charles Wesley and Jonathan Edwards to start the Great Awakening in the 1740s in the colonies. George Whitfield preached an amazing sermon. He was descending the steps, and a person in the front row said, Mr. Whitfield, that was a tremendous message. And he said, I know, the devil already told me as I was coming down the steps. That's how Satan operates. Listen, that's my heart. That's how Satan gets after me, guys. Because I've told you, that's what I want to hear. I want to hear that message. What's the most incredible thing I've ever heard in my life? You know, your children are so well behaved. That's Satan singing my note. It vibrates. That gets me. What's yours? What's your note? You all have one. And the Bible says we're supposed to know it. We're supposed to not be ignorant of Satan's devices. You know, maybe it's... He doesn't come at us with, I'm going to make you destroy your family, leave your spouse, and be married to your career. What is it? He's going to say, you worked so hard, you deserve to be promoted. Maybe that's, your, maybe that's your note, right? You deserve for your wife to serve you better than she does. You deserve to have a couple of drinks and just kick back, you know? What is it? What's your note? Not everybody's note's the same. We all have different temptations. Satan entices all of us differently. But he's cunning, the Bible says. And he's crafty and he's wily. In Genesis 3, the very first introduction we have to Satan, it's this. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the animals, the creatures that God, the Lord God, had created. He comes at you with craft, with cunning, with great skill, and thousands of years of human observation. 
It's really interesting to think about that. I used to hear Christians say all the time, the devil's so stupid, he's so ignorant. Everybody be careful. The Bible says he's incredibly intelligent. I think the real fool is the one who dismisses that. Evil is never simple. Listen, we don't live in a world where the good guys always wear white hats and the, this is not a spaghetti western and all the bad guys wear black hats. I think Satan wears a gray hat sometimes, right? He's not going to come at you with, with a pitchfork and with horns and saying, I'm, I'm the devil and I'm here to do his work. That's not, what, that's not always how it works. It's very subtle. You know what Martin Luther said once? This is really interesting. And maybe I'm in, you know, drawing attention to myself here. But he said, if you're looking for the devil, don't forget, look in the pulpit. That's what Martin Luther said. Now look, don't look at me like that, guys. <laughs> you know me, I'm trying to be biblical here and I'm trying to preach the gospel. But look, don't you think some of the greatest work that Satan has ever done that makes him happy and lights a cigar and put his feet up was, was done right here in the church. Not here, hopefully, God forbid. But in churches throughout history, listen, Satan's behind every false religion in the universe. He created them. He's behind every idol that was ever fashioned that would elevate the worship of some created thing over and above the worship of Christ. Two people came and knocked on my door the other day that were dressed, dressed nice and they were very politely. And both of them were emissaries from Satan to try, try and get me to worship a Jesus that is something less than the God that the Bible talks about. Saying that Jesus was, was a created being and not God in, in human flesh. It's satanic. They didn't have pitchforks. They had very soft voices and they were very polite. I told them to get off my property. No, I told them I'm not interested. You know, go away. I wanted to say a lot more than that, but I was nice. <laughs> I know some of you think, why didn't you invite them in? Because my kids were in there and I didn't want them to hear all that. There's a time and a place, right? Donald Gray Barnhouse was once asked, what would it look like if Satan overtook your city, Philadelphia, where he ministered? Now, this has been read here before, so forgive me if this is redundant, but this is so good and it's so helpful. This is what Donald Gray Barnhouse said. If Satan overtook a city, your city, what would it look like? Maybe not what you think. He said this, if Satan took over Philadelphia, all of the bars would be closed, pornography banished, and pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say yes sir and no ma'am and the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached. And I think he's on to something there. Because if Satan is powerful and if he's cunning and if he's intelligent and if he's studied human behavior for thousands of years, wouldn't you think that would be his entry point into overturning what God is doing? Because the gospel is the most powerful truth and reality in the history of the world. And if Satan can somehow corrupt disfigure, malign, and, and, and mar that seed, then his work is easy. I don't think Satan cares whether it's pornography or moralism that takes you out. I don't think he cares at all. As long as you're blinded to the glory of Christ. As long as the gospel is being eclipsed. Did you know in Mark chapter 1, one of the first places Jesus went to preach was in a synagogue. One of the first places he went was the church. Jesus walked in church. He started preaching the gospel, the Bible says, with authority. Unlike the scribes and the Pharisees, he was preaching it, man. He was preaching the pain off the walls. And it wasn't because he was yelling. It was because he was declaring the gospel promise of God. That God draws near sinners to forgive them, right? And do you know what it says happened? A man with an unclean spirit stood up and screamed, What did you come to do this to me for? Now that's interesting on many different levels. Level number one, 
that demon had probably been in that church a long time and enjoyed it. There was good coffee. There was nice, quiet talks by the Pharisees. Everybody was friendly. <laughs> but Jesus showed up and preached the gospel, and that demon lost his ever-loving mind. I think there's a lot of demons that are very comfortable in churches today. And God forbid, I don't ever want Grace Life to be one of those churches where they're comfortable. I don't, and I know you don't either. Satan is very crafty, he's very cunning. You know, C.S. Lewis wrote a book, and it was called The Screwtape Letters. And it was a fictitious account of an older demon, because demons are all, they were created at the same time, there's no age. But in, in, in Lewis's mind, it was an older, more experienced demon trying to train up this young protege, okay? Um, and this is one of the things he said. Can we put this quote up? He said this, It's funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. I think Lewis was on to something there, don't you? We're saying, Satan made me do it. Satan made me think that. Ah, I'm not buying that. Not all the time. I know he tempts us. I have no doubt there's thoughts that flash into my mind that came out of nowhere. And I don't know if it's a fiery dart from the enemy we're going to talk about next week. Or if it's something I just thought of. Or if it was the food I ate. I don't know. But I know this. What Lewis says is true. Because the one thing we know that Satan seeks to do is to blind you to something. You know what he's trying to keep out of your mind? You know what Satan hates, hates, hates for you to think about, to meditate on, and to glory in? The cross. He hates that. He hates that. That's why I love preaching the gospel and I love talking about the cross because that's the secret weapon of Christians. It shouldn't be a secret. Seems like it is today because hardly anybody talks about it. Um, but the gospel is the most powerful reality in the universe that we need to unleash in our minds and our hearts from the pulpit. Satan wants to keep that out of your mind. That's his most cunning and crafty work. That's why it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul said this to the Corinthians. He said, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Did you hear that? Your thoughts will be led astray. That's what Satan wants. That's how he works. And he goes on in that passage to talk about um, a different gospel, another Jesus. That's how Satan works. He wants to distract you, put your mind on other things, eclipse the glory of Christ. That's what he wants to do. He wants you to disbelieve God's promises. That's what Satan really wants. And that really brings us up to the last point. Um, what was the first point? There's a battle, right? Second point, you face a very menacing enemy, Satan. He's powerful. He's cunning. He's crafty. He's evil. And here's the third point. You don't stand alone. You do not stand alone. We're going to talk about the armor next week, okay, in detail. But for now, just look at the very beginning here. Look at this first part. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Now, I have found in my experience as a pastor and a teacher, people go right to this armor, man. They're ready to put this on and go, go out swinging like an inexperienced MMA fighter that's never been in the ring before. Just, you know, whirlwinding the devil. And Paul says, time out. You, you messed something here, bro. You skipped a really important part here. Before you go out putting this armor on and swinging blindly... Paul says, first of all, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. I mean, we're going to make this point again next week because the armor is God's armor, dude. It's His. It belongs to Him. He's giving it to you. So that's a part of being strengthened in the Lord is putting His armor on. 
and not your own, you know? I would, I would say this. Remember in the Old Testament when David was going out to fight against the, uh, the Philistine giant, Philistine, not Philippine, giant, Goliath? And it says that Saul said, oh, you, you poor thing, you know? He's been a warrior since his youth, and you're just a little shepherd that, that keeps the sheep. Here, put this on. Remember that? And, and Saul tried to, tried to clothe little David in his armor. It must have been a comical sight because the Bible says Saul was a head and shoulders taller than any other Israelite. And he tried to put that armor on David. And David, he tried to walk in and he said, I can't do it. I, can't, I haven't tested it. I feel stupid. I can't move. And so he took it off and he went and got a shepherd's pouch and a slingshot and got five stones and slaughtered the giant. But I would submit to you this. David took off Saul's armor but he was more armored than he had ever been in his life. Because do you, know, do you know what he went out to fight against this giant with? Do you know what truth he had in his heart? He said, the battle is the Lord's. The Lord will deliver me. He was convinced because God had already promised David, you're going to be on the throne. You are my anointed. You're going to reign over Israel. He had already poured the oil over him with the prophet Samuel and anointed David. The very chapter before that, he did that. So David was armored up with God's armor. He didn't need... Saul's armor. So often we do that. We put on this flimsy human armor and we don't stand a chance against Satan with that kind of stuff. We need God's armor. We need to be strengthened according to his mind. Well, what does that mean, Pastor? What's the, let the rubber hit the road here. Brass tacks on the ground. What does this mean? It means this. And I hope you're not disappointed with what this means because I believe this is the, this is the correct interpretation. This is telling us to meditate on the power and the strength and the glories of Jesus Christ. Be strengthened in his mind. It's interesting because I'm not a Greek geek, but you know I can parse this verb here. In verse 10 it says this, Be strong in the Lord. Now that's a command, isn't it? Paul, through the Holy Spirit, is telling you and me to go do something. He's telling you, be strengthened. But here's the, the mystery and the paradox in this. This is a passive verb. You know what that means? He's telling you to do something, but he's telling you to have something done to you in the same sentence. You understand? It's, it's, it's interesting. Only the Bible does this kind of thing. He's saying, go be strengthened. But he's telling you to be strengthened. He's telling you there's something that somebody else has to do to you. Now go and get about it. So what is it? How are we strengthened? What do we do? We are to meditate on the power and the might and the glory of Christ. And we see that Jesus has this. Jesus has already conquered this enemy. Satan is cunning, but God is all wise. Um, Satan is clever. Satan is powerful, but he doesn't stand a chance against Christ. And how can you do this? Let me give you some practical ways. When you're reading the Gospels, look at the way that Jesus cast out demons. <laughs> Have you ever noticed that? With ease. With ease. They even said, Jesus said, if I, with the finger of God, cast out Satan. Isn't that interesting? The way he almost taunts the devil. Jesus says, I have cast out Satan uh, with just my itty bitty pinky. That's all it took. Because I actually created him before he fell from heaven and became a demon. I control him. As Martin Luther said, the devil is God's ape. He's on a very short leash and he cannot touch you or me without leave from God, without permission from God. Man, that's a glorious truth, guys, to celebrate. It makes me want to do a backflip. I mean, the battle is the Lord's. And as long as I'm resisting, it's interesting. James says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and resist the devil. Don't divorce those things. Don't, have I told you the story about when I was growing up with my brother and, and, and there was a, 
a very mean Doberman pincher in our neighborhood and scared me to death. And one Saturday, that dog had the audacity to come up in our yard and started barking at me and my brother, snarling, baring his teeth. And I was scared. That dog was to the, you know, an eight-year-old kid. He was a horse, the size of a horse. And he bit. He had bitten neighbors before. And so my brother and I, all we had was a basketball. And man, I'm just crying. I'm thinking, man, this is it. This is how I'm going to go. And out of nowhere, my dad comes running down the hill, yelling something I couldn't spell today if I had to, because I lived in the South. It was something like, get on out of here. Something like that. And man, that dog, yip, 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 ran off. I never saw it again. Now my dad was there. It was a Saturday. He was working in the yard. He was behind me, but I didn't see my dad. I didn't know he was there. And it's almost the same way. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Don't do this on your own. Your father is much more mighty and much more powerful than you are. And he has already defeated the enemy. And as long as you're humbling yourself and staying close to God, you got this. Be strengthened according to his might. That's what it's talking about. So when you're reading the Gospels, look at, at the ease with which uh, Jesus exercised dominion and superiority over Satan. I mean, he cast thousands of demons out of a man. And, uh, and Decapolis, remember that? Legion, that means thousands in Greek. He cast all of them out, and the man was seated, clothed, and in his right mind. Look at the way that Jesus handled temptation. Do you want to know how powerful and how cunning Satan is? Our first parents, Adam and Eve, they were in a perfect environment. They had perfect bodies. They say we used two or three percent of our brains, they used 100% of their brains, okay? They were on their A game. And Satan came at them. They were together. They weren't isolated. They were perfect. Satan came at them and with one crafty little lie overthrew all of humanity, plunged all of us into sin. And he seemed to have done it with ease. Now, I want you to compare that temptation and that defeat with Jesus. Jesus was alone. He was in a weakened state because he had fasted for 40 days. <clears throat> He was by himself, he was isolated in the wilderness where the wild beasts were, and Satan came at him with all of his artillery. And what did Jesus do? He defeated him. He defeated him. Not once did Jesus bite or find any of those lies attractive that the enemy threw at him. That strengthens me because I belong, I belong to him. You know, Adam plunged me into sin, but that man is my deliverer. He's the God-man. He defeated Satan, he cast him out, he overturned the temptations and was victorious. But more than that, meditate on the cross. Do you know what Colossians 2.15 says? It says, when Jesus was nailed to the cross and was, uh, rose from the grave three days later, it says that he disarmed principalities and powers and authorities. The same terms that are used here in Ephesians 6. It says, he put them to an open shame. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> Guys, that's what the Bible says. That's amazing. That was done for us. Be strengthened when you read that and know the battle is the Lord's. This is an invisible battle, but listen, the war has been fought. It's over, man. Satan is done. He is a lion, but his teeth have been removed. You know? He has no power over us at all because we belong to Christ. We can be strengthened according to that truth. John 10, Jesus said no Man is able to pluck my children from my hand because my Father who sent me is greater than all. You can strengthen yourself with that truth. You can strengthen yourself with Romans 8 where Paul said, I'm convinced that nothing is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. No angel, no principality, nothing in the heavens, nothing below the earth, nothing around the earth 
No created thing is able to, to uh, ever separate us. Even when you feel like you're separated, that truth, you can meditate on it and it over, overpowers your temptation to believe that lie. Those are the things that we use to strengthen ourselves according to his mind. And a lot more could be said. Um, Daniel chapter 11, verse 32, is, that was one of the first verses I ever memorized. And it says this, The people who know their God shall be strong and carry out mighty acts. And that's what Paul's saying here. Know your God. Study. You know, we don't just study the Word just to have information and build up pride and, and facts. We study the Word to know God better, to be stronger, to be strengthened, to be able to resist the enemy and be victorious. And you know what? This is the perfect timing, as Mark said in the introduction. This is the perfect timing, I think, to do just a quick two-week series on this because you know what we end with? We end with Easter. <laughs> I mean, that's the death nail in, in Satan's coffin. It's over. It's over. Satan no longer has any power or authority in our lives, in our children's lives. So we don't have to have this satanic panic, guys. We're not dismissive. We recognize Satan is real, and he is at work in the world, and he's at work seeking to overthrow what God is doing in our lives. But listen, we have an advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has settled the score. The battle is his. And next week, we're going to talk about all these pieces of armor especially the sword of the Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit, our helper, our advocate. The Holy Spirit is within us, the Bible says. That's an amazing and powerful truth that we can, um, that can just build incredible resilience and, and give us instruction. The Spirit is the one who interprets the Bible. The Spirit is the one who seals our hearts. The Spirit is the one that reminds us of all these precious promises. So we're going to get into more of that next week. But for now, that's enough just to know that we're in a battle that's invisible we face a very dangerous enemy, but we do not stand alone. And therefore, the victory is, is ours because of Christ. Amen?